It's the Victorian Variety Show. Perhaps you smile in answer at the notion of becoming a naturalist. And yet you cannot deny that there must be a fascination in the study of natural history, though what it is, is as yet unknown to you. Your daughters, perhaps, have been seized with the prevailing pteridomania and are collecting and buying ferns with wards cases wherein to keep them for which you have to pay and wrangling over unpronounceable names of species, which seem to be different in each new fern book that they buy till the pteridomania seems to you somewhat of a bore. And yet you cannot deny that they find an enjoyment in it and are more active, more cheerful, more self-forgetful over it than they would have been over novels and gossip, crochet and Berlin wool. At least you will confess that the abomination of fancy work, that standing cloak for dreamy idleness, not to mention the injury which it does to poor starving needlewomen, has all but vanished from your drawing room since the lady ferns and Venus's hair appeared. And that you could not help yourself looking now and then at the said Venus's hair and agreeing that nature's real beauties were somewhat superior to the ghastly woolen caricatures which they had superseded. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast in which I take an in-depth look at aspects of life during the Victorian era that generally don't get as much attention as perhaps they should in an academic setting or in media representations of that time period. Some of the topics I cover might seem weird or unconventional at first, in part because weird and unconventional topics appeal to me, but I also like to highlight why it's important to learn about them and understand where they came from. Because often, when we look deep enough, we can find present day similarities. And sometimes, I cover a topic that I think exemplifies broader themes that we tend to come across frequently when we look at the Victorian era, which I think is the case with the subject of this week's episode, pteridomania which can be translated literally as a quote-unquote madness or craze for ferns. My name is Marissa, and the excerpt I just read is taken from a book by Charles Kingsley called Glaucus, or The Wonders of the Shore, which was originally published in 1855. But the edition I looked at, to which I'll include a link in the show notes, along with all of the other sources I used to put this episode together, was published in 1890. I decided to open with this passage not only because Kingsley is credited with coining the term pteridomania, which begins with a silent P, but also because I think it gives you a sense of the general interest in science and the natural world during the Victorian era which I've discussed in previous episodes, as well as an idea of how widespread this particular quote-unquote mania was, and how it ties in with other popular phenomena from this period. 
And I do want to emphasize here that when I use terms like mania or madness or such in this episode, I'm using them in the context of the terminology of the time period and the sources I looked at. But overall, I think it's important to recognize that these words are used too casually by too many people in a way that can be hurtful. And they're not words that I generally use. Before we say any more about teridomania, I want to take a moment to look at ferns for those of you who may not be familiar with them. And admittedly, I am not nearly as knowledgeable as I'd like to be when it comes to plants. According to Britannica, the fern is actually a, quote, class of non-flowering, herbaceous vascular plants that possess true roots, stems, and complex leaves that reproduce by spores, end quote. Approximately 10,500 surviving fern species have been identified, but new species are apparently still being discovered. Although ferns are generally diverse in terms of habitat, the majority of fern species seem to be found mainly in warm, damp areas, especially in tropical areas. They also vary widely in shape and size, with some being small and filmy, and others are large and resemble trees. And they can appear in a variety of locations, from open bogs and marshes to rock crevices to tree trunks. Possibly because ferns reproduce from spores rather than seeds, they have possessed an aura of mystery and, as a result, have appeared in myths and folklore around the world for centuries. According to the Symbolism and Metaphor website, ferns have been associated with both invisibility and vision and eyesight, as well as good fortune, love, growth, and protection. So there's definitely a lot more to ferns than meets the eye, pun intended, and it doesn't seem like the Victorians were the first to appreciate them. Although, as with other trends I've looked at, they did take their appreciation for ferns to entirely new levels. The majority of the sources I looked at in putting this episode together trace the roots, again pun intended, of Teridomania back to just before the beginning of the Victorian era, specifically to 1829, when British doctor Nathaniel Bagshaw Ward invented the Wardian case, an early version of the terrarium. According to Jessica Brain in the Wardian case, Dr. Ward was an avid naturalist who, frustrated by failed attempts to grow plants in his London garden due to the pollution caused by nearby industrial facilities, took to nurturing plants, as well as a cocoon of moths, indoors in glass jars. After noticing how a fern spore and grass seedling germinated in one of the jars, he sought to replicate this by teaming up with a carpenter to create a glass case in which plants could not only be grown and displayed, but also transported. Thanks to imperialism, there was a lot of traveling going on during this time. And many travelers were bringing back with them not only quote unquote exotic animal specimens that they could stuff, mount, and hang in their parlors, 
but also plants that needed to be able to survive long voyages back to England. With some positive word of mouth from Ward's plant supplier, George Lottages, who, according to Dimitra Nikolaidu in How the Victorian Fern Hunting Craze Led to Adventure, Romance, and Crime, spread rumors claiming that collecting ferns was a sign of intelligence and was beneficial for mental health and virility. And Edward Newman, a local botanist who supported Lottage's claims in his book, A History of British Ferns, the Wardian case became a must-have item in many upper-class British homes. However, even though fern collecting started as a popular pastime among members of the elite who could afford to display fancy glass cases in their homes, or in the case of the super wealthy, build fern greenhouses on their properties, it wasn't long before miners, farmers, and other members of the laboring classes also began to reap the benefits of fern collecting which Nikolai Du describes as one of a very small number of hobbies that was able to transcend, if you will, class barriers. In fact, elites began to encourage poor and mentally ill people to quote-unquote elevate themselves by taking up fern collecting, which made me think of something I mentioned when I covered Victorian-era mental asylums a little over a year ago, which was that some asylums of the period especially those that were built according to the quote-unquote moral therapy model of 18th century reformers like Samuel Tuke, included gardens whose upkeep was entrusted to patients, for whom gardening was intended not just as an occupation, but also as a form of therapy in itself. If a home fernery or greenhouse was out of your price range, you could visit a public fernery built in the form of a so-called gothic grotto, which I don't know about you, but I love the sound of, like the one that was built at Bicton Park in Devon in the 1840s. In Teridomania, Fern Madness, Ellen Castellau explains that the Bicton Park ferneries, quote, strategically place boulders and large rocks create a cool, moist root run whilst the surrounding trees and shrubs give shade and protection to the ferns, end quote. In a similar vein, those who couldn't afford to splurge on Wardian cases could keep dried fern specimens in albums. If you couldn't travel the world in search of non-British fern species or afford the high prices of imported ferns, you could still go on fern hunting expeditions closer to home. Although Nikolai Du estimates that only around 40 fern species had been identified in the British countryside around that time, the, quote, wilder, wetter, western and northern parts of Britain, end quote, were opening up thanks to road improvement and railroads. So the prospect of taking a trip to one of these locations and possibly finding a brand new fern variety or a quote-unquote monstrosity, which according to Wikipedia was an odd variant of a wild species, seemed to promise an adventure for many budding, and I'm sorry, I can't resist, once again, pun intended, naturalists. Plus, it seems like meeting and mingling with like-minded individuals added to the thrill, 
so fern hunting groups became popular on both sides of the pond. Nikolai Du explains that at the height of Teridomania, tea parties faded in popularity among many Victorian hostesses, who instead organized fern hunting expeditions that included picnic lunches and contests to see who could find the rarest specimen. Fern hunting parties were also ideal social occasions for both men and women, in part because of the romantic opportunities they offered young singles with a shared interest in botany. Nikolaidu explains that botany was one of the few quote-unquote acceptable ways for women to satisfy their thirst for adventure, and because it was mostly considered, quote, an entirely wholesome, healthy, and moral activity, end quote, women could do it unchaperoned. But, having just said that, ferns were often associated with female sexuality during the Victorian era, when quote-unquote proper women needed to find implicit ways to express themselves. In Victorian ladies used ferns as a covert way to express passion and desire. E.L. Hamilton tells us that the names of some fern species are actually euphemisms for parts of the female anatomy, such as the quote-unquote maidenhair fern. I'm not going to go into much more detail here. You can probably use your imaginations, but I think it's a good example of how people found creative ways to communicate in what's often seen as a very repressed time period. Due to the fern's popularity, as well as to the fact that fern fronds are kind of flat, which means that they can be used in a number of decorative ways, Wikipedia notes that the fern became a, quote, fond symbol of pleasurable pursuits, end quote, that appeared on a wide variety of consumer products in the second half of the 19th century. Through a technique known as nature printing, which Wikipedia tells us was first developed in the 18th century and vastly improved in the mid-19th century by individuals such as Henry Riley Bradbury, author of the 1855 book, The Ferns of Great Britain and Ireland, plants and other natural subjects were used in the production of their images on book plates and other appropriate surfaces. And due to sometimes contradictory societal phenomena that were occurring at the same time, such as mass production enabled by the Industrial Revolution, as well as the incorporation of art into everyday household objects, in part as a response to the sameness often attributed to mass production by artists associated with the aesthetic movement, it seems like it became difficult to find surfaces that were not adorned with fern images. Nikolaidu mentions as examples dresses, tea sets, fans, custard cream biscuits, and tombstones. Shout out to friend of the show Stephen of the Dark Stories from the Campfire podcast for tagging me in a list of Victorian tombstone symbols, including the fern, on Twitter a few days ago. And I thought of some of the fern patterns that I saw on wallpaper designed by William Morris when I did my episodes on both arsenic and aestheticism last year. However, as it tends to happen with hobbies that become super popular, teridomania also had its detractors. 
As Nora Mueller reminds us in In Pursuit of Madness, Teridomania and the Historic Fascination with Ferns, many Victorians were quick to label many things that deviated even slightly from proper behavior as quote-unquote madness. So even though fern hunting in itself was generally considered a healthy, wholesome hobby, it seems likely to me that the intensity with which it was pursued by so many people was frowned upon by some. Plus, Mueller suggests that the tendency to label fads as quote-unquote manias during this time often targeted women specifically, which I think you could see in the somewhat patronizing tone in the excerpt by Charles Kingley that I read at the top of this show. Not surprising, considering what I said a few minutes ago about the association between ferns and female sexuality. However, it does seem like teridomania had fewer critics overall than other Victorian-era trends that I've looked at. I think in large part because it was embraced by a wide variety of individuals of different classes and in different professions. Mueller cites Sarah Whittingham, author of a 2012 book called Fern Fever, the story of teridomania, who has said that, quote, ferns were not just the obsession of a few professional botanists, nor even of the thousands of amateur gardeners and naturalists, but held a popular fascination for much of society. If you decorated and furnished your house, went to the seaside, strolled in pleasure gardens, patronized the theater and concerts, visited exhibitions, read novels, played music, or spent time in a hospital, you encountered ferns and ferneries, end quote. Most of the resources that I looked at focused mainly on fern fever in England. And Nikolai Du does note that fern mania was quote-unquote subtler in the U.S., even though the American Fern Society, which was established in 1893, remains one of the largest international fern clubs in the world. In addition, in When Ferns Were All the Rage, Cynthia Green quotes Gustave Tauman, a former Victorian fern collector who, in 1922, waxed nostalgic to the American Fern Journal about his long days collecting ferns in wooded areas of New England. Tauman reported that from July through October, he and his colleagues would leave early in the morning and remain until late in the evening, gathering 50 to 100 fronds at a time, dropping them into a basket, which an assistant would gather into cases. They'd sell the ferns directly in the summer and in the autumn, store them in cold frames in outhouses or cellars until they could be sold in the winter or spring. According to Tauman, quote-unquote fern loss occurred largely through carelessness, such as handling them roughly while picking them, stepping on them, placing them in piles that were too large, or storing them in areas that experienced extreme temperatures. So, even though Green's article focuses on professional fern leaf collectors in the U.S. and doesn't really say much about amateur American fern collectors who maybe ventured out into the woods to collect their own ferns, it does seem like there was some demand for ferns on this side of the pond during this time as well. Although people were still going fern hunting until around the start of World War I, 
In general, teridomania began to wane in the very early 20th century, coinciding with Queen Victoria's passing in 1901. According to Casselow, there doesn't seem to be a particular reason for this fading interest. It's possible that ferns largely fell out of fashion, as many trends do after a while. Unfortunately, the populations of several fern species were drastically reduced in the UK, and in some cases nearly wiped out before this happened, such as the Killarney fern and Dickey's bladder fern. Also, once interest in fern collecting waned, a number of great outdoor ferneries fell into disuse and disrepair. But there have been efforts in recent years to restore some Victorian ferneries, such as the Morris Arboretum at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, which was originally built in 1899 and fully restored in 1994. In addition, the American Fern Society says on their website that they sponsor so-called fern forays every summer. And these allow fern enthusiasts to meet each other and learn about wild ferns from experts. So, even though it always makes me sad to see natural phenomena treated as a hobby that gets abandoned as soon as something newer and more exciting comes along, I do feel better knowing that there are still people out there who appreciate ferns and are making efforts to preserve them. But now, I'd love to know what you think. Email me at victorianvarietyshow at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at anchor.fm slash marissa-d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash victorianvariety1. And if you'd like to support the show financially, there are several ways you can do that. You can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13, or leave a donation if you're listening on the Good Pods app or by going to my Linktree page, to which there's a link in the show notes. And finally, I'd really appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen, as that helps this podcast reach more listeners. Thanks so much for listening and for all of your feedback. And I really hope you enjoyed this discussion of teridomania. I think this is an important topic to look at for this time of year, with spring just a few weeks away in the Northern Hemisphere, even though I wasn't thinking of that when I decided to cover this topic. It just kind of worked out that way. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. But in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with another excerpt from Charles Kingsley's book, Glaucus. And some of what's in this passage has not aged well, to put it mildly, especially the mention of, quote, Crusoe's one savage footprint, end quote, toward the end. But I think this passage gives you an idea of the sense of adventure that we associate with many Victorian-era naturalists, especially the amateur ones, while also hinting at some of what made fern collecting somewhat problematic from a modern-day perspective. Happy, truly, is the naturalist. 
He has no time for melancholy dreams. The earth becomes to him transparent. Everywhere he sees significancies, harmonies, laws, chains of cause and effect endlessly interlinked, which draw him out of the narrow sphere of self-interest and self-pleasing into a pure and wholesome region of solemn joy and wonder. He goes up some Snowden Valley. To him, it is a solemn spot, though unnoticed by his companions, where the stag's horn club moss ceases to straggle across the turf, and the tufted alpine club moss takes its place, for he is now in a new world, a region whose climate is eternally influenced by some fresh law, after which he vainly guesses with a sigh at his own ignorance, which renders life impossible to one species, possible to another. And it is a still more solemn thought to him that it was not always so, that eons and ages back, that rock which he passed a thousand feet below was fringed, not as now with fern and blue bugle and white bramble flowers, but perhaps with the Alp Rose and the Gemson craft of Mont Blanc, at least with Alpine saxifrages, which have now retreated a thousand feet up the mountainside, and with the blue snow gentian and the Canadian sedum, which have all but vanished out of the British Isles. And what is it which tells him that strange story? Yon smooth and rounded surface of rock, polished, remark across the strata and against the grain and furrowed here and there as if by iron talons with long parallel scratches. It was the crawling of a glacier which polished that rock face. The stones fallen from Snowden Peak into the half-liquid lake of ice above which plowed those furrows. Eons and eons ago before the time when Adam first embraced his Eve in happy hour and every bird in Eden burst in carol, every bud in flower. Those marks were there, the records of the age of ice, slight, truly, to be faced by the next farmer who needs to build a wall, but unmistakable boundless in significance, like Crusoe's one savage footprint on the seashore. And the naturalist acknowledges the finger mark of God and wonders and worships.